Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning for our brother Jim, for the many gifts that you've given him in terms of leadership and teaching. And so God, we pray that you would use those gifts this morning, that you would bless him with power. Uh, Pray that he would remember the things that he's been studying and learning this week as he looked at Jonah chapter 2. And God, I pray that you would speak powerfully through him, through your word and through your spirit, that you would prepare our hearts to hear and listen. Convict our hearts where we are running and where we are wayward and draw us back into your grace and your love as we consider your rescue through the rescue of Jonah this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Sometime back in April, Andy asked me if I could preach today and uh, I didn't know what we would be doing and uh, what we'd be working on. And, And sometimes they give me a, they assign me a passage and sometimes they just tell me to come and pick my own. So in this case, I found out uh, sometime in May or June that we were going to do Jonah. And I'd never preached in Jonah before, but whenever I think about Jonah, Martha and the Vandellas always get into my head. And so I thought I would share that with you this morning. Hit it, guys. So nowhere to, I've, I've probably messed up the sermon at this point. This will be stuck in your head. Hopefully it'll be stuck in your head today and maybe for the week. Nowhere to run to. And uh, we heard that from Andy just two weeks ago. I, I was back there. Sherry's trying to keep me from singing this song during the sermon because Jonah is running and he finds out that there's nowhere to run to. And uh, so when I look at this book, Uh, I have a proposition for you, and that is that if Jonah wasn't swallowed by a big fish, that I'm pretty sure you would know nothing about the book of Jonah, mostly because I'm pretty sure that you're not students of the minor prophets. Am I right about that? So if I were to take a little test or a little survey of the minor prophets, I wonder how you'd do. We'll start with the first one. It's Hosea. Do you know what Hosea is about or who it's written to? Uh, You might know about his Baal prostitute wife, Gomer, but that would be about the extent of your knowledge. And then after Hosea comes Joel. And uh, Joel is a prophet that is quoted in the day of Pentecost. And that may be all you know about the book of Joel. And then after him comes Amos. You remember anything about Amos? Um, The funniest thing about the book of Amos is that Amos is a fig picker. Did you know that? That Amos is a fig picker? So then uh, he's not a prophet or a son of a prophet. He's just a fig picker. And the Lord calls him to be a prophet. And then there's Obadiah which you barely remember is in there. It's the shortest of the prophets. And Obadiah is a prophet to Edom. Did you remember that? No, I didn't think so. So what what this means, beloved, is that the fish is in this story so that you won't forget it. That's God's work to bring you the truth about the grace 
of his love because Jonah has done his best to run from God and he has been caught. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. He's as far away from God as you can get. He is in the abyss. He's in the deep, and yet still God's grace captures him there. That's what we see in this story. God's mercy and grace can reach anyone. That's been the theme of our worship this morning. I don't know if you, you, you noticed that. God can reach anyone, anywhere, anytime. And that's what you're supposed to remember about Jonah. That's what this book is about. That, that, that's what I want you to remember today, that God's grace can reach anyone anywhere, anytime. Say it with me. Anyone, anywhere, anytime. Got it? All right. Well, I have three points about Jonah's prayer. It wouldn't be a good Presbyterian sermon. So three things that I want to share with you about, uh, about the gospel this morning. And, and point number one is this, Jonah's prayer in the abyss. Now, the abyss in the Bible is the deep. It's the depths of the sea. It's, it's a reference to the place of the dead sometimes. And, and it often rever, refers to the bottomless pit where evil resides. It, it's sometimes synonymous with hell. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 20, uh, the angel comes from heaven, and it's most likely Jesus with the key to the abyss, and he locks Satan away for a thousand years to keep him from deceiving the nations while the gospel progresses internationally. So that's right now. Jesus has the key to the abyss. In, in Luke 8, there's a great story about Jesus driving out the demons from the Gadarene, the Gerasene demoniac. I wanted to share that one on the screen. Luke 8, verse 30, Jesus then asked him, this is the de demon-possessed man, what is your name? And he said, Legion. Some, some nasty voice like that, right? For many demons had entered him, and, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now think about that. Jesus is going to cast out the demons and send them back to the bottomless pit where they can harm nobody. And so verse 32 says, now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now that's a weird story, isn't it? But it's really a funny story because Jesus is under no obligation to honor the demons or their wishes. And so he very, very craftily sends them back to the abyss in the depths of the lake. So they asked not to go to the abyss. So Jesus, and they asked to go into the pigs instead. So they do. And then they run straight back to the abyss where they belong. And they're drowned in the deep. You see that? Isn't that a wild story? Jonah... Well, we see there that Jesus is Lord of the abyss. Not Satan. Jesus is Lord of the abyss. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Jonah is in the abyss. And verse 3 says that God put him there. <clears throat> Even though the sailors hurt, hurled him back in, into the sea back in chapter 1, it is God's work and plan behind the scenes that put him there. 
So this is a problem, wouldn't you agree? Jonah is in the abyss. And so when Jonah took off to go as far away from, uh, from Israel as possible to run from God, when he went west towards Tarshish, away from God's presence in Jerusalem instead of going east to Nineveh to do God's will, do you ever think that for a moment that Jonah believed that God would judge him in such a fashion that he would end up in the abyss. Do you think Jonah ever thought that for a minute when he took off the run? I, I don't think so. In fact, I'm certain of it. There's no way that's what he was thinking. Jonah thinks Jonah is far too righteous for that. Jo Jonah's sure he's one of the good guys. He, he's an Israelite. He's a chosen people. He's a, a chosen prophet who speaks to kings. In fact, he is running to keep God's grace away from idolaters. Jonah imagined that he's really doing God's work if God would just see it. It, it, it reminds me of, of, a, a, of a Pharisee named Saul in the book of Acts who is killing Christians in the name of Jehovah. And Saul believes that he is doing God's work on God's behalf. So in this story, Jonah is running downhill, and the result is to land in the place with no grace. He is in the abyss. And in verse 4, he says that he has been driven away from God's sight. Did you catch that as we read it? That he's been driven away from the eyes of God, and he will now only see God's temple in judgment. And in verse 6, he says he's gone to the land where the bars and the doors will shut him up forever. It's a place of judgment. And in the Old Testament, the phrase, the land, whenever you see that, sometimes it says the earth, but the land is a, is a reference usually to the promised land. It's a word phrase that's used in your Old Testament to refer to Israel. But now, think about this, that word takes on the opposite meaning. He's run from the land, and he's ended up in the land of no hope, in the, in the abyss. That's what he says in, in, in verse 6. It's pretty ironic, isn't it, that he ran from the land, and he ends up in the land of no hope. From the land of hope to the land of no hope. And what he's experiencing is full-blown judgment by God. He, he may have been saved by a fish, but he's still in the abyss. And, and I hope you realize that by now that Jonah's not a good guy. He's not one of the good ones. He's certainly religious. He's a churchgoer, but he's a racist. He's a nationalist, and he's a religious bigot. That's our Jonah. He, he's self-righteous. He's arrogant. And quite frankly, he gets what he deserves. He, he reminds me of some terrible judges in the book of Judges, like Jephthah, who offered his daughter as a burnt offering. And Samson, who never did anything right. Who, both of these guys only served themselves. You can read the stories on your own. Jephthah and Samson whose service to the Lord was always first in service to themselves. And when you read this story right here in Jonah and meditate on this prayer, it's meant to take your breath away. And I hope it does. 
Taking God's grace for granted is serious business, and God doesn't take it lightly. It's a violation of the third commandment. You know, the one about not taking God's name. Here it is up on the screen to remind you, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of Jehovah your God in vain, for Jehovah will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, that command is not primarily about cuss words. It's about, it's a command to make sure that you don't take vows in vain, you don't make promises in vain, and it's a vow, it's a, it's a, it's a command to make sure that your life lines up with, the, with God's covenant that you've agreed to follow, that you will seek him first in all things, that you will seek his will, that you will accept his will, that you will approve his will, and that you will do his will. That's what that command's about. Listen, when you're a baptized person and you don't take your relationship with Christ um, and his church seriously, you're in violation of the third commandment. You're taking God's name in vain. You were baptized in God's name, and that's a vow to live for Christ forever. And that's true even if you were baptized as an infant. So when you're baptized and you're slack and lazy in your Christianity, or or when you live like hell, even though you're baptized, you know anybody like that who lives like hell even though they're baptized? I have a child like that. Then you're breaking the third commandment and you're a covenant breaker and you're in trouble because God says he won't hold you guiltless. And if you're sitting there thinking, maybe you're a teenager, a young person, you're thinking, well, it wasn't my choice to be baptized. Well, that your parents did it. I got treated that way, just like you. Well, if you're thinking like that, you're not helping yourself. It's God's grace to put you in a believing family and to make you a covenant child. More people go to heaven out of covenant families than any other way. To be set apart for Christ from birth, what tremendous grace. To bear his name on your brow forever and ever. To have the mark of Christ on you. It's incredible grace. I can't wait till we baptize those babies that was born this weekend and we get to show God's forever grace in the life of a covenant child. And and so when you're thinking, well, I didn't choose to do it, well, you're in. And you got the mark of Christ because God decided ahead of time before the foundation of the world to give you godly parents who would want you in. That's God's grace. But listen, if you don't want that, if you don't want God's grace, then he'll co- okay, he'll treat you like Jonah. He'll simply take it from you, and you can join a Jonah in the deep. It's not good, beloved. It's not good. But there is hope, even in the abyss, because Jesus is Lord of the abyss. So that's the second thing I want to show you is life from God our Savior. When you read commentaries about this passage, they argue about what this prayer is about. Some say it's a prayer of repentance. Others say it's a prayer of thanksgiving. I I want to tell you that it's a psalm of narrative praise. That's the kind of form that it takes. 
As much as Jonah is telling his own story in the abyss, he's really telling God's story. That's what this prayer is about. This prayer clearly points us to God. He's the hero and he's the superstar. Whoever wrote this book is a master storyteller, and good, good stories always come with some solid literary construction. Your English teachers will tell you that. I slept through English, and, uh, and so then I had to relearn that later in life so that I could understand the Bible a little bit. Usually, a good storyteller tells things in repetitive themes with parallels so that you can see the point. And, and the book of Jonah comes like that. It's very clear. It comes in two parts. Chapters one and two are part one. That's Jonah on the run. Part two is chapters three and four, and that's Jonah on mission. In, in chapter two, Jonah has to deal with God in prayer. In Jonah, in Jonah four, Jonah has to deal with God after God saves everybody and Jonah's not happy because he's not one of the good guys. And, and if you look at the details, they're almost exact parallels. Um, we're obviously supposed to look at it that way. And, and Tim Keller says that the first part is Jonah the prodigal. And then the second part is Jonah, the older brother. That's a really, really good insight. It's the same thing I see in the Beatitudes that we just worked through that Weber and his guys preached through. The first four Beatitudes are a call of astonishing grace from the king to broken outsider prodigals. That's who he's addressing. The poor, those who mourn and are hurting, and the meek and those who have been deprived of justice. That's who he's calling to himself to say, in the kingdom of God, there's hope for you. And in the second four Beatitudes, we saw these guys helping us with repentance because that's, th those are aimed at the older brother, insider, and, and uh, it's a call of repenting grace from the king to self-righteous churchgoers like us who are not as special as we think. And so what brought the prodigal son, if you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, what brought the prodigal son to his senses after he ran away from the father to chase his own dreams, and his dreams didn't work out so well apart from the father, and what brought the prodigal son to his senses was not a desire, not a deep desire for repentance. That wasn't it. But a sudden memory of the goodness of his father. That's what brought him to his senses. And that's always the beginning of repentance and turning away from sin and self and pride for anyone. The prodigal says this, he says, even my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger working for another. So I wanted to show you the structure, be a little geeky and put it up on the screen. Can you guys put that chart up for me? There you go. So here's Jonah 2, not the whole book, just our chapter. And it's, uh, it's what's called by literature people a chiasm. It goes A, B, C, B, A. And so it's a pattern 
where there's re repetition, A goes with A prime, B goes with B prime, and then C is in the middle. And if you look at the story, you can see it pretty clearly. The, the key signals to show you B and B prime are, are the holy temple is mentioned twice. That's the key structure that shows us where the divisions are. What I, what I want you to see most especially out of this is a couple things. Notice how God, Jehovah Lord, is the initiator. So Jehovah appoints a fish and Jonah then responds and prays, right? I think most of us, if we were in the belly of a fish, would pray. Amen? I think we would. And then, and then Jehovah gives him life in the abyss, and that's the reason that Jonah remembers the goodness of the Lord. God goes first. He always goes first. That's the definition of grace. And so then finally God responds to all that by sending Jonah, sending the fish to dry land. And, and so that, that God moves first here. And then what, how this helps you in studying a story, storytellers often tell stories like this. The movies you watch on TV and Netflix are usually built like this. They're a little more complex, but they usually have this kind of structure. And, uh, and so... How that helps you is to look at C because that's really the important part. That's the climax. So guys, put verse 6 up on the screen, would you? There it is. At the roots of the mountains, here's where verse 6 should start. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now who moved first? God did. He brought Jonah's life back to him, even though he was closed upon in the land whose bars close forever. When life and salvation come to Jonah, he's locked away forever. Boom. Done. Over. No hope of repentance. And yet God gave him life so that he would remember and repent. Isn't that good? Locked away forever, and repentance comes to him. That's the climax of the story, and that's what we're supposed to see. God's grace in the abyss. That's what this prayer is about. To a runaway, self-righteous, religious bigot. Now that's amazing, amen? Amen. What Jonah remembers then when he comes to his senses because God gives him life and new hope, what Jonah remembers is God in his holy temple, which means he is remembering God's presence among his people, God's grace and the atonement for his people in the holy of holies where the mercy seat is and where the high priest enters once a year to bring the atonement for God's people so they, they can continue on in God's grace. That's what that temple is about. And, and, and Jonah's remembering that he came to the temple and made sacrifices of joy and thanksgiving just because he loved God and he was so happy that God loved him. And it's about keeping your vows which in the Old Testament, you pay for the privilege of making vows. This, this is the same kind of thing that happened to King David when he's depressed and he was feeling far from God and feeling a little self-pity because of all of his enemies because the king always has people who are whispering in the halls. It's worse for a king even than for a pastor. 
because people are always having pastor for lunch after church. And so David's a little depressed about his enemies. And here's what he says in Psalm 63. I love this psalm. Matthew Ward used to sing it back in the late 80s, but I won't play another song, but it's worth looking up on YouTube. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, and my flesh faints for you. It's like being in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Ah, but here's the grace, you see. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. So because of your steadfast life is better than, your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So see, David remembers God in the sanctuary with with the people of God. And he remembers God's power and, and his glory and his steadfast love. And so David begins to worship and remember the steadfast love of our God. And his depression lifts and his faith is renewed. You can, read that through, you can read that progression through this psalm. It's beautiful. Pray through it. Enjoy it. Immerse yourself in the grace of our God. He, he, he goes, so, so it's the same thing that, um, it's the same thing you can see uh, in Psalm 73. Uh, it, this is the psalm of Asaph. A- Asaph is offended by the fact that it always looks like the evildoers are prospering and the righteous are suffering. And so that, that really causes him offense because the, the good guys are supposed to do well and the bad guys are supposed to do bad, right? But life in a sinful world is not always like that. And so you can get ahead by being wicked. It's true. You can cut corners and do better in business, in life, but it doesn't help you in the long run and so here's what, here's what, just a part of that psalm, here's what he prays. He, he was really offended. And then he gets to verse 16 and he said, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, even trying to understand God's providence in all of this, when we know he's Lord. In verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I discerned there, And I'm pretty sure that's supposed to say. (laughs) Then I discerned their end. I think there's a cut and paste function somewhere. (laughs) Is that what that is? That's a little footnote. Yeah. Yeah. It's a day when, uh, it's a day when, there you go. The good guys up there. Thank you, fellas. They can't fix everything. If you have the wrong response of reading up there, it still won't be right, right? So here's verse 25. These are two verses that you should memorize from Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? Hallelujah. And there is nothing on the land, nothing on the earth, that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, certainly they will, right? But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. 
And then Asaph goes on to talk about the end of the wicked and, and what happens to the unfaithful. And then he meditates on the goodness of God to those who trust in him and make God their refuge. It's really good. Beloved, is that you? Have you made Christ your refuge? Is Jesus your hiding place? Is he the one you run to when your faith is weak? When God's will and his purpose seems hard to accept or to approve at all? Do you run away like Jonah or do you run toward him in faith and hope knowing that he is the strength of your life and your portion forever? Do you remember, beloved, can you remember this this morning? That your story is integrated by grace into the story of Christ. Can you believe that? that we are his brothers and sisters and your life is integrated into the life of God's people, into the life of Christ. So the story is all one about his amazing grace and his gracious church where your brothers and sisters live. Can you take that away with you this morning? Remember that grace? Well, that leads us to the third thing I wanted you to see in our poem this morning, and that's God's steadfast love. Oh, is this good. What Jonah remembers here is that there's only two paths to life. You can follow Christ with a full heart, or you can give your best to the idols of your heart. Those are the choices. Those are the only options. Here's what he says in verse 8 and 9, just to remind you. He prays this, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's pretty serious. Verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You, you know, we, we used to call them foxhole prayers. You're stuck in a foxhole and you promise that you will do anything for the Lord if he'll get you out of it. But that's not the way vows in the Bible work. In the, in the Bible, you make vows and you pay a, a fee to make the vow before anything ever happens. It's kind of, so it happened to Andy and, and Weber. They took vows of ordination, right? And so did Jonah. And Jonah ran from his vow of ordination. And he's remembering that he's going to keep his ordination vow. You know, one of these paths that you can choose comes from, flows from God's initiating faithful love and mercy. And the other path finds its hope in self-salvation, following sin and pride and arrogance. And the warning that Jonah gives here to his own soul is that the path of idolatry offers no hope. Now, he experienced this back in chapter 1 when the sailors cried out to their gods to calm the sea, and it was all for nothing. Do you remember that? No hope, no answers. It wasn't until they cried out to the Lord Jehovah that salvation came. And, and, and we're going to see a, re, a repeat of that experience next week in chapter 3. 
when the Ninevites cry out to Jehovah and are saved. And, and now Jonah is seeing it in his own life. When he ran from God, it was a heart idol that caused him to run. And, and it's a heart idol he was following, imagining himself lord over God's grace and mercy toward pagan idolaters. And, and the great irony is that Jonah is following an idol of the heart to keep the Ninevites from repenting from their idol. Now that should make you laugh at how foolish we are. The problem with idols, whether they are physical or, or like the kind that we encounter in India again and again, or it's the spiritual kind that all of us struggle with in our hearts, the problem is, is that they don't keep their promises. It's a fool's errand. Idols promise satisfaction, but they don't deliver. Whether they're whatever, because whatever emotional or spiritual or physical pleasure they might offer in the in the immediacy, it doesn't last. It's kind of like hard drugs, which I've never taken, but I can read. You have to keep going back again. And again, and I've ex certainly experienced that with my own heart idols. Uh, idols have no power to forgive you, no power over guilt and shame. And that's the flip side. The flip side is not only are they always demanding, but they're never forgiving. When you fail your idols, and, and you certainly will, when you do, idols shower you with guilt, shame, and fear, and then we respond with anger and frustration and shame not hope. And then the cycle repeats. So whatever you turn to when you're joyful or when you're disappointed or when you're wounded or when you're hurting, whoever it is, whatever it is, if it's not Christ, then it's an idol. Whoever you trust to get you out of trouble, if it's not Christ, then it's an idol. Whatever you boast about when things are going well, if it's not Christ, then it's an idol. It could be money. It could be success. It could be work. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's the fact that you're compassionate and you care about people. That can be an idol. You can be doing good and be following an idol. Lots of people doing that. It could be booze or drugs. It could be recognition and respect. It could be politics. It could be Christian nationalism. Most idols don't come from bad things. They are simply woven and synthesized and syncretized into your heart along with Christ. And the bad news about idolatry is that those who follow idols as a way of life, even religious idols like Jonah followed, well, they forsake their hope of steadfast love because idols don't love. They don't save, they don't forgive, and your only hope will come from yourself. And beloved, that's not much hope. In fact, that's no hope at all. But there is good news, beloved. It's an incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. 
Jesus died on a cross for our idolatry and our sins, and he rose again from the dead to give us new life, real hope, and true satisfaction. And, and he did it before you or I ever thought for a minute that he was the heart of salvation. Look at Romans 5. I love this verse. For while we were still weak, at the right time, God, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus doesn't save godly people. He only saves lost and ungodly people. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, instead of running from his grace, beloved, we run to grace, acknowledging all the while that Christ is Lord and that we can't do it by ourselves and we have no hope apart from his grace. God's grace can reach anyone, anywhere, anytime. And I love how this story of Jonah points directly to Christ. Here's Jesus in Matthew 12. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three nights, three days and three nights in the heart of the land, in the heart of the earth. Jonah was thrown into the abyss to save the sailors. Did you notice that in the story? That Jonah was sacrificed to save those who were left. He was thrown into the abyss to save the sailors and then the Ninevites. And I think he was in the whale's belly for three days because that's how long it would take to preach through the city of Nineveh. Though I don't know. It's my guess. Because then that three days points to the tomb of Christ. That's how the story of salvation is woven together. And just as Jonah was thrown into the abyss to save the sailors, beloved, Christ has been thrown into the abyss to save you and me. And he was forsaken by the Father so that you and I would never would be. And then the Lord commanded that the grave give him up and he took his life back from the dead. How about that? You know, idols will forsake you. They always do. But Jesus never will. So I invite you this morning to put your trust, to renew your trust completely in Christ for your salvation, for your joy, for your peace, even in hard days, and for steadfast, never-ending, sacrificial love. So with Jonah, we shout, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to Christ. Shout that with me. Salvation belongs to Christ. Salvation belongs to Christ. You see, he's the one that does it all. And, and you remember those bad judges, Jephthah and Samson? You know those guys that I mentioned? They're terrible. And they're in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And I read that, and every time I read it, I think, God's grace for anyone, anywhere, anytime. That's crazy grace. And remember Saul, the Christian murderer? Well, you know, right? He becomes Paul the apostle to the Gentiles and writes a bunch of the New Testament. Because Christ can reach anyone, 
anywhere, anytime. Even you, right here, right now. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Father, nowhere to run to, nowhere to hide. Locked away forever, and you still do your thing. And for that, we will ever give thanks and sing your praise. We have no hope of salvation apart from your grace. And we praise you that your grace just comes and comes and it comes again. And we love you for it. Thank you for showering your steadfast love upon us. And Father, we pray this morning for anybody who's struggling with doubts, that you would take them away, that you would crush them with your love, and that anybody who is wondering whether they should follow Christ, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen.